only country in the world that has come out of every major disaster stronger than we went into it. We got clobbered going in, but we came out stronger. That's the objective here. It's not just to get back to where we were. It's to get back to better than where we were. And we have the wherewithal to do it now with the legislation that's been bipartisanly passed. So I don't want any Kentuckian telling me, you don't, you don't have to do this for me. Oh, yeah, we do. You're an American citizen. We never give up. We never stop. We never bow. We never bend. We just go forward. That was President Biden speaking in Kentucky. He, along with First Lady Jill Biden and Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear, toured the devastation left after severe flooding in the state. Families in Kentucky continue to mourn the lives lost. As of the taping of this podcast, 37 people were killed and two women are still missing. While in Kentucky, President Biden alluded to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act by the Senate. It includes billions of dollars to combat climate change. We continue our Water Week series with a conversation on flooding, and not just in coastal communities like Miami or New York, but in inland regions like the Great Plains, the Midwest, and the South. After the break, we start our conversation by heading to Kentucky and checking on all the latest there. I'm Jen White, joining you from KUNC in Colorado. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We're discussing inland flooding as part of our Water Week series. Joining us from Kentucky is reporter Karen Zarr from WUKY. Karen, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Also with us is Alex Gibson. He's a native Kentuckian and executive director of The Apple Shop. That's a nonprofit multimedia organization focused on central Appalachian culture. Alex, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So it's been nearly two weeks since disastrous floods first struck eastern Kentucky. Alex, how much damage remains where you are in Whitesburg, Kentucky? Well, it's still really early to assess. A lot of folks are just now able to enter their spaces and and begin recovery efforts. But it has been uh, historic levels of flooding and, and incredible amounts of damage. Can you give us an idea of how your staff and the surrounding community have been affected by the floods and ongoing rain? Yeah, I mean, a lot of folks were trying their best to live as is, you know, post-coal, post-large employment, and trying to figure out new economies, new ways forward. We had a, you know, a lot, there's a lot of vibrancy in this part of the country, and uh, the floods come through and they hit the low-lying valleys and they on their way down through the valleys they pick up all the logs from coal mining and resource extraction energy companies uh, timber companies etc and those logs become weapons as they roll through homes and um, so yeah folks folks it was hard already and uh, now folks really are relying on uh, each other to try and figure out a way forward Karen, when we spoke to you last week, residents were struggling to access clean drinking water. How are communities faring now and what needs still haven't been met? There, there actually have been a lot of improvements. Power-wise, we're down to just a few hundred. Water-wise, though, as you mentioned, and it was the big concern last week, it's better, but there are still over 6,600 connections that are out, and that's for drinking water. There are about 30,000 Kentuckians who are under a boil water advisory Wastewater systems are still out. There are five that are still offline. There are eight that are limited operations. And as we talked about last week, 
the damage is all underground. These pipes have literally been ripped out from the pressure of, of this water, uh, grabbed the pipes and just took them. And so it is going to take, as the governor said last week, some areas, it could be months before some Kentuckians have clean drinking water again. Alex, you grew up in eastern Kentucky. You've spent much of your life there. How do these disasters factor in into day-to-day life in the region? Well, it's incredibly impactful. Um, I mean, the water situation is is one to take. For example, prior to prior to this flood, we couldn't drink our water in Letcher County from mining runoff. Um, so, you know, life life was already very difficult. I hate, I hate to keep reemphasizing that, but you know, it seems it seems that these things, you know, climate events, uh, catastrophic catastrophic events impact the most vulnerable folks you know a lot of a lot of the images i think people have of folks vulnerable to climate change are um island you know island nations and and uh and other low-lying places it's true that also you know it's 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 an economic class of that creates vulnerability you know whether we see uh exposure to toxic chemicals in in urban cities or our exposure to the t- toxic chemicals running down our mountains you know it's um it's it's tough to be to to not have a lot of money and to go through natural disasters that are also very closely related to the to the to the financial practice of the region you know so but at the same time it's clear you you have a deep love for the region, despite the the environmental dangers, what is it about that part of the country that you connect to? Uh, well, for for me, per, I think it's personal for everybody. I, of course, physically, I grew up in this area, so you know, running through the the forests and you know, up trees and and through barns, and I grabbed tobacco sticks and I I'd, I I'd, I'd pretend to be a Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, moving past that. You know, as I traveled around the world, I, w- I went to to rural Mexico and rural Thailand and rural Vietnam and et cetera, et cetera, India, so on. And I, I kept meeting Appalachians. And and I, I think growing up here, you kind of favor the underdog. You know, and I was black growing up in this area too, so you know, made me sort of a fan of the underdog. And I just kept seeing Appalachians again and again. You know that 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 this place was less of a of a particular ethnic. Uh, novelty and more a uh, necessary component of a functioning capitalist state that every nation around the world has Appalachians. And they're talked about the same way, they're treated the same way, they're ridiculed the same way, and they provide the same thing to the majority class. So after seeing that again and again, after having a monk in Thailand sing country roads to me as he was telling me about the problems they had there, I decided I was somewhat committed to these regions of the world. Okay, Karen, you spoke with Geraldine Mullins from Hazard, Kentucky. Her sister remains missing and her husband was hospitalized. I'm just going to take day by day and just uh, when I'm doing stuff, if I stay busy, but it still comes back in my mind that all that we have lost, but they so many people has lost more than we have. I mean, when you lose a life, you lose a lot. Kentucky has faced tornadoes, floods, oppressive heat, mudslides. This is just in the past year. Karen, how are community members you've spoken with reacting to these back-to-back disasters? You know, it's amazing how the one word so many people have used is resilient. They all say, we're going to pull together. We are strong. And Geraldine, who you just heard from, 
that was actually, they invited me to their church service on Sunday, and I sat with her while she cried. And But she got up and spoke to the entire congregation and said, everything is going to be okay. We are going to be okay. And that's been the the sentiment of everyone there. As Alex said earlier, the people, the community, it is absolutely gorgeous part of the country. It's a beautiful part of our state. And it is home. These people have lived there for generations. And and they're they're going to be there for the long haul. And they're going to continue to do whatever it takes to to fix everything, to repair, and try and get back to some sort of normalcy. But again, as Alex pointed out, it's there's a lot of people here who were struggling even before this disaster. And they just, they want to help each other. The people who weren't affected stepped up immediately and were bringing in donations and making sure everyone has some place to stay, food to eat, and clothes on their back. FEMA allows homeowners to take buyouts for properties in high flood risk areas. But Alex, what are the challenges beyond that connection to the land of asking Kentuckians to leave their homes, even if they're continually at risk? Well, a lot of folks, you know, it's <clears throat> a lot of folks, their land and their home is, is all that they have. And um, you know, I, I think, again, for, for example, when you travel, when you travel around and you see different parts of the country and you see folks that don't have a lot, there's typically some, and it's, and it's culturally based <laughs> very typically, but some possession or some sense of ownership over something particular. When everything is taken away from them, maybe they have a truck or maybe they have an, some nice clothes or maybe they maintain a clean home. In Appalachia, historically, land has meant a lot, that the world can be against us, that we can be tricked other places. But in our land with our fence, we can have our sense of peace. And to ask folks who haven't had a lot of other things go their way to also give up on that last thing that they've held for generations can be really effective to their to their, you know, mental state and health. That's Alex Gibson. He's executive director of the Apple Shop. Also with us, Karen Zarr, a reporter with WUKY in Eastern Kentucky. Alex, Karen, we appreciate your time today. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember, you can also be part of future conversations. Just download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. We'll hear more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation by adding another voice. Joining us now is Ann Bink. She's Associate Administrator for the Office of Response and Recovery at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. Ann, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And what federal assistance is available to families affected by the flooding in Kentucky? Yes. So we have federal assistance in the form of individual assistance for for home, for households uh, and individuals. What that really does is it provides a jumpstart uh, to individual and family recovery uh, where funds are provided to help build back after a disaster, as well as replace lost contents in the flood. Uh, the administrator was on the ground with President Biden two days ago to to really discuss that message of not only uh, building back, but uh, building back better. What are you hearing from aid workers on the ground about both the short-term and long-term support Kentucky needs? It's going to be a challenging recovery, there's no doubt. But the message is FEMA will be with you every step of the way uh, for Kentuckians. We will walk walk that long road together. Uh, we want to do it in the most uh, effective way possible, in a way that really meets uh, residents where they are. Uh, you know, we heard uh, from guests that just spoke about the resilience of this community. 
I was on the ground last week and saw this firsthand. Not only were people helping that weren't impacted by the flooding, but I met county officials that had their homes destroyed and were still helping folks uh, within the disaster recovery centers and helping their neighbors uh, over getting their own affairs in order. And that kind of resiliency and that kind of commitment to community is something we not only saw in Eastern Kentucky related to flooding, but I, I saw in December as well uh, with the tornadoes in Western Kentucky. Kentucky ranks 24th in the nation for flood insurance coverage. Just over 1% of all properties in the state have flood insurance contracts. That's according to FEMA's Flood Risk Disclosure Report. We also heard from Alex that many families there are are struggling. How do you communicate the value of national flood insurance to people who may be really struggling to make ends meet? Yeah, right now in Kentucky, we're laser-focused on folks' recovery. And the question you raise is an important one. While the flood insurance rates are low there, this is exactly why we do encourage uh, homeowners to always uh, purchase flood insurance whenever possible to really help jumpstart that recovery in addition to the assistance that FEMA provides. Uh, We do engage in an all-hands recovery with all of our interagency partners, including HUD. Um, So we look forward to continuing to work with them as as we move forward in recovery. What support is available for people who lost their homes but aren't a part of the NFIP? So that's that's that individual assistance funding uh, I was mentioning. So to jumpstart recovery, there are cash there are cash uh, assistance programs available to support not only uh, repairing your home but replacing personal contents, vehicles, those types of uninsured losses that occur uh, typically after a flooding or other natural disaster. FEMA's put up three quarters of the funding for the Residential Voluntary Property Buyout Program. It helps people leave areas regularly threatened by natural disasters. How do you convince residents living in flood-prone areas to leave neighborhoods they've invested in their entire lives? We we walk with with communities and individuals and families in the recovery. So we we don't impose upon them what they should do. We come to them and say, what do you want to do and how can we help you get there? Uh, and that's really the suite of the programs that we we offer to folks after disaster and to you know local and state governments as well. Buyouts being one of them. It is it is a solution for a lot of homeowners that feel they are at risk and repetitive risk, and that is certainly available through our resilience funding. Uh, as is the ability to to build back uh, and include mitigation measures into building back to uh, strengthen homes that remain uh, as much as possible against extreme weather. Well, as you said, President Biden had a message for Eastern Kentucky that it wasn't just about building back, it was about building back better. What does that mean functionally for an area that's prone to this type of flooding? Yeah, so the Inflation Reduction Act, I first want to say, um, applaud uh, the administration and Congress for acting. It's a $370 billion climate change action proposal that will greatly enhance efforts to uh, reduce the impacts of extreme weather into the future uh, and really lead internationally in that effort. Uh, FEMA has always had a role in resiliency, uh, and that is seen through our Building Resilience, uh, Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program. Uh, Recently, we announced over a billion dollars in awards to support communities in strengthening and hardening their infrastructure against the impacts of extreme weather. And we also do it through response and recovery efforts and funding uh, through major disaster declarations. When communities are building back, we look for every opportunity to build back in a more resilient uh, way to, to really address those climate impacts. So as the president said, 
we look at a whole of community recovery and we look at any potential areas where we can expand uh, building to make it more resilient. And in, in looking at the scenes of devastation in eastern Kentucky, it's hard to imagine what kind of hardening can hold up to that type of flooding. Can you give us one or two concrete examples uh, around what resiliency looks like for these areas? Yeah, so one of the major impacts to infrastructure for this uh, disaster was related to washouts, right? Road washouts, bridge washouts. And there's a lot of private bridges in this, these areas that lead to, to homes on other, other sides of creeks or rivers. So that's an area where we, we focus in flooding is how can we uh, raise, those, uh, raise that infrastructure? How can we harden that infrastructure through specific actions that are authorized through not only pre-disaster programs, but in this case, uh, building back? That's Ann Bink. She's Associate Administrator for the Office of Response and Recovery at FEMA. Ann, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Let's bring two new voices into the conversation. Joining us now is Carolyn Kowski, the Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. Carolyn, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us is Nicholas Penter. He's the Associate Director of the UC Davis Center for Watershed Sciences. He's also a professor of applied geosciences at UC Davis. His research focuses on flooding and river systems. Nicholas, it's great to have you. Happy to be here. Carolyn, how do you determine the economic impact flooding has on a community in the short term and long term? Flooding can be incredibly financially devastating for households when they get hit. It causes property damage, damage to their contents, but it can also disrupt commutes and lead to greater commuting costs or cause debris cleanup and damage to landscape. So the expenses can really pile up on households. But you can also see economic impacts for local communities too, when they see repeated flooding or particularly devastating flood events. So times when Um, The recovery is consuming all their residents and businesses might have to shut down, um, property values might be impacted and thus tax revenues. So there can really be a whole range of economic costs associated with really severe floods and other disasters. Is there an annual dollar amount that we can sort of wrap our minds around when we think about the cost of this flooding? Well, they vary a lot, but we can look at some data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that tracks what they call billion-dollar disasters, so disasters to our country that cost at least a billion. And those have been increasing for all sorts of weather events in recent years. When we look at household at the household level, flooding can cause thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. If it's a really severe event that you know damages almost all of your home, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. We got this voicemail box from Marigold in Colorado. I understand that strip mining and mountaintop removal are common techniques used in eastern Kentucky by the coal industry. Does that contribute to the flooding there because it removes vegetation and the soil that anchors it? Nicholas, why are the communities along the Kentucky River particularly susceptible to extreme flooding? Well, these communities are located in the Cumberland Plateau. It is rugged topography, steep slopes, which means the water runs off really fast. They are susceptible to this kind of flash flooding. And to Marigold's point, does strip mining play a role here? So we haven't looked at that in detail. You know, big floods like this begin with a lot of rainfall, and they had that. They had record-breaking rainfall up to eight inches within 24 hours reported. 
Um, there's climate change in there in a lot of places. And then in some locations, you know, this area has a long history of human modification of the watersheds and the basins, including, as they mentioned, mining, timbering, and agriculture, which in some other locations do play a role in flood magnitudes. You mentioned climate change. How is that exacerbating flood risk, particularly for inland communities? Yeah, inland communities are seeing the gradual effects of a warming climate, which means more moisture in the air, more energy to storms, greater likelihood over time of this kind of an event. We got this tweet from Nancy who says, I did notice there were a number of families in Kentucky affected that were not in flood zones. They would never have considered getting flood insurance. Now, Carolyn, we mentioned just over 1% of residents in Kentucky are enrolled in the National Flood Insurance Program. How do you determine whether your home is at risk of flooding and how seriously to take that risk? Yeah, it's a good question, and we need to do a better job educating people about flood risk. Right now, if you're in one of the FEMA-mapped so-called special flood hazard areas, then if you have a loan from a regulated lender, you're required to have flood insurance. But we see even in this zone, great variation in the number of people who actually have flood insurance and take up rates are much higher in coastal communities than they are in inland areas. And then we're also seeing, as you noted, that floods are occurring outside these areas. And part of that is just extreme events increasing. But part of it is that those maps typically don't include rainfall-related flooding. So the kind of stormwater flooding or heavy precipitation that might occur far from a river. And so those people aren't alerted that they could be at risk of flooding too. Um, And sometimes the maps are also old and not quite up to date. So there's a number of reasons you could have um, serious flood risk not in one of these FEMA zones. And so you wouldn't be required to purchase flood insurance. And sometimes you might not even be alerted because a lot of our mechanisms for letting people know that they're at risk of flooding are tied to that FEMA map. So your lender has to tell you if you're in that zone. States often have disclosure requirements that a seller needs to tell you if you're in that zone. But we don't have really good mechanisms for alerting people to flood risk outside those areas. And we also don't have good mechanisms for talking to people about how flood risk is changing and how the flood risk today might not be the flood risk that they're seeing, you know, five years, 10 years, 30 years down the line. We got this message from Patricia who says, when I tried to purchase flood insurance, I was told I couldn't because I was not in a flood zone as determined by the government. Carolyn, is that something people experience commonly where they're trying to protect their home, but they're told, actually, you can't buy this? It's actually incorrect. Anyone in a participating community can purchase flood insurance, but it points to another problem, which is a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions about the program. Um, And unfortunately, that exists not just with individuals who are trying to figure it out themselves, but with the very insurance agents who are trying to help them. So you really have to find an insurance agent who's knowledgeable about flood and can help you navigate the flood insurance program or help you explore private sector options, which are available in some places. Now, in 2019, the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting found 80 dams were in poor or unsatisfactory condition and considered high hazard by state inspector inspectors. Nicholas, how important are dams in managing the extent of flooding in inland communities across the country? Well, I live downstream of a dam, many dams actually in California here, and that's a big part of the portfolio for protecting against flooding here and in Kentucky. So you can see the signature of that in in the July flooding in some of these communities. So uh, Hazard, Kentucky, had some of the top of that that flood event chopped off by the dam upstream of it, whereas Whitesburg was upstream of the dam, therefore not protected. 
I think that's probably not the only solution here, um, particularly in this area. The condition of dams is very, very important. Again, sitting here in California, Oroville, if people remember that, that was that was part of the problem. It was the problem, not the solution a few years back. So what tools are most effective in making communities flood resilient? I mean, there's seawalls, elevating properties, water pumps. What are the best options? Right. So that's the big question now in Kentucky. So as these communities move from recovering to the flood to long-term restoration, the bottom line is they have a window of opportunity to act now to make floods in future years less damaging than what they saw this year. There's various mitigation tools. I suspect it will not involve building new dams there. Um, FEMA will provide them resources. There are opportunities, for example, to elevate structures. You talked about buyouts earlier. And then there's examples in the area of, in some cases, whole neighborhoods or even entire communities moving off the floodplain. Well, we mentioned managed retreat, which is increasingly being discussed for communities that are consistently flooded. It's an idea supported by some of you, including Justin in Cape Cod. We have... Quite often, sea level issues. We have beach erosion causing homes to fall into the water. We have storm surge, uh, king tides that raise the sea level once or twice a month uh, into the roads. Uh, but I'm not so much afraid for humans. We, I think we will be fine. We, we are nomadic people. We started very small, and we've spread across this globe, and I think it will give us opportunity to discover new areas. Uh, Nicholas, just explain what managed retreat means. So managed retreat is a term that's been raised to, to talk about moving away from hazards. That could be rising sea level or, or the threat of flooding. Um, and again, it's, it involves individual buyouts uh, or sometimes larger population, you know, entire community relocations. You've written about examples of this dating back to the 1800s. What's one story of a community moving that, that really stays with you? Yeah, so the poster child of managed retreat to this day remains Valmire, Illinois, which was catastrophically flooded in the 1993 Great Midwestern Flood. And uh, they faced the same decision as Whitesburg, uh, Kentucky, is facing today. And that is, are they going to just rebuild in place, face that risk next time a great big uh, uh, storm comes through, or or solve the risk of flooding forever. And they resolved to do the latter. They moved a couple of miles away from the river, 400 feet higher in elevation, and have essentially eliminated the threat of flooding forever. Carolyn, anytime we, we talk about potentially relocating communities, I, I have to wonder if there's an equity piece to this. Are low-income communities or black and brown communities impacted differently by managed retreat plans? Yeah, it's a good question, and it raises a broader point, too, of how we're spending and allocating our federal dollars and who's getting the resources, um, because very affluent communities might have sufficient resources on their own or among their residents in order to pay for things like relocation or any types of investments in resilience. But lower-income households and communities simply don't have the funds to make those types of changes that would be really beneficial for them in the long term. Um, there's been a recent shift in trying to push more of our federal dollars into those communities who really need the help the most. And so to prioritize um, with our federal assistance those places, um, yeah, that otherwise wouldn't have the resources to invest in these types of changes. Uh, Carolyn, the Inflation Reduction Act includes $60 billion to help disadvantaged areas, which are disproportionately affected by climate change. How will this funding make communities more resilient to flooding? 
Yeah, there's a number of things both in the recent act and some other recent FEMA programs that are directing dollars that can be used for a lot of the things we've been talking about today, investments in buyouts, in home elevations, in improving infrastructure, um, in a range of nature-based solutions to help harness um, you know, ecosystems in storing floodwaters and reducing the impacts, especially um, maybe in urban areas. And some of those, yeah, those dollars are going to be really important. Um, in the recent bill that was passed, there's also assistance for other ways of um, being able to recover faster. Like if the grid goes down and you're out of power and the other option might be a generator, but if you have solar panels, which are being now subsidized partially by the federal government, if this bill makes it through Congress in order to help decarbonize, well, that could also be a source of power for you when the grid's down and provide resilience in the aftermath of a disaster if it's set up correctly with batteries. So there's a range of tools. Well, and Nicholas, in this this final minute we have, I'd love to hear from you on that question of, of what communities should be asking themselves as they try to prepare for a more resilient future as these federal dollars are coming into their communities? How should they allocate these funds? So I urge communities affected by the flood, again, as they get over this initial stage of recovery, to look at other communities that have uh, been through this process before. There are great benefits to addressing the long-term risk of flooding, that we've looked at communities that have taken strong action and they have bounced back. So the, the threat of flooding hangs over a community you've had callers already talking about thousands, in some places, tens of thousands of dollars of annual insurance premiums. So that holds over a community, that holds it back over time. Addressing flood risk provides solutions. That's Nicholas Penter. He's a professor of applied geosciences at UC Davis. Also with us today, Carolyn Kowski. She's the Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. Carolyn, Nicholas, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing your stories. This is 1A.